The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. As we remain standing, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for going all the way to the cross, for dying there for our sins in order to redeem us, to rescue us, to bring us out of death into life. We praise you for this gift of salvation. We pray that you'd be honored in our midst this morning. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Sometimes, sometimes life gets interrupted. You're moving along at a steady clip when all of a sudden reality steps in and it completely knocks you off course. This happened to a buddy of mine earlier this month in a particularly devastating way. In an email to friends, he wrote, Last week, out of the blue, our lives took a different turn when we learned that my wife has a large brain tumor. Sometimes life takes a different turn, as my friend put it. A cancer diagnosis, car accident, sudden financial instability, job loss, you name it. Life gets sideswiped, and we find ourselves navigating circumstances that we never imagined. Well, in these moments, our faith gets tested who we really are and what we really believe are placed on display. And sometimes what rises to the surface is really beautiful. Other times it's ugly and embarrassing. Abraham faced one of these interruptions soon after settling into the land that God had promised him. And in this particular instance, what rose to the surface, it wasn't pretty. This morning we are going to take a look at this season in the life of Abraham and Sarah. We're going to consider the circumstances. We're going to evaluate Abraham's response. And then we're going to reflect on why this story is, is here and what it is meant to tell us. So I hope you'll turn to Genesis uh, 12 with me. It's on page 8 of the Red Bibles, Genesis 12. And our text begins in verse 10 with the kind of bad news that knocks everything off course. Now there was famine in the land. There was famine in the land. Last week, we were introduced to Abraham and Sarah at the end of chapter 11. And there we discovered that this couple had suffered substantial loss, the loss of loved ones, the loss of their homeland, and the loss of hope in the future because of infertility. But then in the opening chapters of verse 12, God steps in and God makes a series of promises to Abraham and Sarah that not only changed their lives, but promised to alter the course of humanity God promises to give them their own land and their own children who will grow into a mighty nation through whom God will bless every nation under the sun. 
Abraham and Sarah believe God. They obey his instructions. They uproot their lives and they head to the land that he promised. And when they arrive, they worship him with gratitude. So halfway through chapter 12, halfway through chapter 12, we have all the makings of a story that's well on its way to a happy ending. But then reality happens. Having arrived in the land that God promised, Abraham and Sarah are hit by famine. In so many ways, this is what the life of faith looks like. And so I think it's worth pausing for just a moment to reflect. Some of us have this idea that if we do everything right, if we say our prayers, go to, go to church and behave ourselves, then God will make sure that life goes smoothly for us. Good Christians should have relatively easy lives, right? That would be so nice. But it's not the way that things work. You can do everything right and life can still go wrong. And that doesn't mean that God has stopped loving you. It doesn't mean that you've done something wrong. It's simply the nature of reality in a world that's been broken apart by sin. God doesn't promise to protect us from life. He promises to rescue us from death. And those are different things. And he promises, having rescued us from death, then to raise us to a new life that is so glorious, we don't have the capacity here and now even to imagine it. Good and faithful people are going to be buffeted by hard things in this life. And we are invited to respond to these hard things with the same faith that allows us to enjoy the good things of God. That's the life of faith. And we need to get back to the famine. The land that God had given Abraham and Sarah, it was dependent on rainfall for growing crops. One bad year made life pretty challenging. Two bad years, though, and things got untenable. Famine indicates the latter, or perhaps worse. Food was running out. Water was increasingly scarce. People were starting to panic. And that was when Abraham made the decision to leave. All the text tells us in verse 10 is the following. It simply says, now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Now the text makes no overt judgment about this decision. But we are left to wonder, was their departure from the land that God had promised them, was it an act of faithlessness? Or, or was this an act of wisdom? Was it Abraham's way of saying to God, I just don't really trust you? Or was this merely the sensible thing to do in the face of a famine? The ambivalence in the text, I think, is pretty instructive. Sometimes, sometimes life presents us with no good options. Sometimes God is silent and doesn't give us directions. We're left to make decisions as best we can. And in these situations, we pray. We seek the wisdom of others. We try to determine to the very best of our ability what faithful, faithfulness looks like. And then we act. Now, the text doesn't tell us what to think about Abraham's decision. But... There is something missing during this season in the life of Abraham and Sarah, and I think it's important. I actually think it's vital. Notice that at no point during this time of famine 
and sojourning in Egypt, at no point are we told that Abraham and Sarah worship the Lord. In the preceding passage, Abraham twice builds an altar and calls upon the name of the, of the Lord. And at the very beginning of the next story in chapter 13, we're told that Abraham returned to the place where he had first built an altar and he worshiped the Lord again. In between, though, in between these two times of worship, Abraham and Sarah appear to rely on their wits, not on the God of promise. And that's a bad thing. And it becomes increasingly clear as Abraham and Sarah venture into Egypt. So verse 11, when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you're a beautiful woman in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they'll, they'll kill me, but they'll let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. One of the qualities of a good leader is the ability, the ability to anticipate what's going to happen next and then plan accordingly. Abraham is a good leader and he is a strategic thinker. Before they even cross the border into Egypt, he has anticipated what might happen when they get there. He knows how beautiful Sarah is. And he knows that once they cross into foreign territory, they are going to be vulnerable. Someone will see Sarah and will want her at any cost. And Abram knows that his life could be in danger as a result. So he comes up with a plan not only to save his own life, but actually it's a plan where he stands to make a little money on the side as well. So think about this. If Abraham is Sarah's brother and not Sarah's husband, then instead of being a problem for a potential suitor, he simply is the gatekeeper to Sarah's affections. A beautiful woman could fetch quite a price, and Abraham would be the beneficiary. If they played their cards right, he thought, not only could they survive, he could actually make some money, protect Sarah, and get out of Egypt before anybody caught on. That is shrewd. Abraham's a smart guy. It is shrewd. It is also dishonest, deceptive, and extremely dangerous. In order to protect himself... Abraham puts his wife at risk. He risks her safety, he risks her purity, and he risks her honor. And I want you to notice how he rationalizes all of this to her in verse 13. It's pretty twisted. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. So you see what he's doing there? He, he spins it in such a way to make it all about her. It's just, I just am loving you, honey. For your sake, suggests that it's, he's doing it all for her. <laughs> this is ty somewhat typical. <laughs> now, 
some of us see things from Abraham's vantage point, and we're inclined to be sympathetic. Life has forced his hand. There are no good options. It's either going to be death from starvation in Canaan or death at the hands of jealous men in Egypt. And so he comes up with the best plan that he can, and Sarah goes along with it. He doesn't force her into it. Those of you who are sympathetic to Abraham, you're being honest. And I appreciate that. We often face difficult circumstances or seemingly impossible decisions that that require us to act. We feel like we don't have time to pray. And heck, we feel like prayer won't make a difference because every possible outcome is already guaranteed to be bad. And so we take control. We live by our wits. If we have to be dishonest, we're dishonest. If we put other people at risk, so be it. If we have to bully and deceive, we're okay with that as long as we can protect our family, right? That's one response. Others of us, Others of us are pretty quick to judge Abraham. What a scoundrel, we say. I would never do that. And those of us who respond in this way, we're right. He is a scoundrel. And I think there are enough clues in the text to confirm for us that what he's doing isn't just wrong. It's pretty wicked. But for us to say, I would never do that, is pretty dishonest. Most people when they are put up against the wall, reconsider their moral obligations very quickly. We do what it takes to protect ourselves and our stuff. Most of us would probably have acted just like Abraham. Now this is especially the case when our judgment is clouded by fear. It's especially the case when our judgment is clouded by fear. Throughout this season, Abraham and Sarah make decisions based on fear. They fear the severity of the famine. Abraham fears what might happen to him because of Sarah's beauty. Fear causes Abraham to believe the worst about the future. Notice how he says without a shade of doubt that he's going to be killed in Egypt unless they both agree to lie. That's what fear does to us. It causes us to believe the worst. It creates a sense of urgency And that pulls us away from patient prayer and it pushes us to rely on ourselves. Fear then leads to impulsiveness, which so often turns into a cascade of poor decisions. Before you realize what's happened, fear has led you from a difficult situation into an impossible situation as a result of your own bad decision making. One of the best things you can do for your spiritual health is to actually be honest about your fears. Are you, are you fearful about your personal finances? Are you fearful for your kids? Are you afraid of professional failure? Are you afraid you may never get married or that your marriage will always be unhappy? See, people who are afraid for their kids, they tend to be controlling and overbearing. People who are afraid of financial instability tend to be stingy and at times dishonest. People who are afraid of failure cheat. When we're honest about what we're afraid of, we are able to name those parts of our lives where we are least likely to trust in God. 
where we are more likely to rely on our wits and therefore most likely to make ungodly decisions. But when we've named them, we can bring them before God. Abraham was right to be afraid. There was a famine. His clan, his people were threatened. Fear is sometimes the right response to danger, but even when fear is warranted, we can never allow it to drive out our faith, which unfortunately is what seems to happen to Abraham and Sarah. Remember that important detail from the story. When the crisis hit, worship vanished. Our problem, just like Abraham, is that all too often we fail to turn to the Lord for guidance or to ask Him to intervene. When we feel threatened, instead of praying, we start planning. If we're going to be faithful in the face of fear, we're going to have to learn to turn that initial flash of panic into a prayer. We need to get back to the story. In the final paragraph, we see two things. We see the negative impact of Abraham and Sarah's sin, and we see the incredible grace of God in protecting them. So verse 17, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you've done to me? Why didn't you tell me, or why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? so that I took her for my wife. Now then, here's your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So in chapter 12, God promised Abraham that he would be a blessing to every nation. Instead of blessing, however, he brings curses and a plague down to Egypt. Now, this is probably the clearest indication in the text that Abraham's deception was an act of faithlessness and a betrayal of trust in God. And it's fascinating that the only honest person in the story is the pagan, Pharaoh. Even more fascinating is the fact that his question, what is this that you have done? It sounds a lot like God's question to Adam and Eve in the garden after they'd sinned. Sometimes it takes a pagan non-believer to awaken God's people to the obvious truth. Abraham was a smart guy. He predicted what would happen in Egypt, and he was pretty much right. But what he didn't anticipate was that Sarah would catch the eye of Pharaoh. And once that happened, she was gone. And all of Abraham's scheming was worthless. It's an important lesson for us. We will never be shrewd enough to outsmart the troubles we face on our own. Fear may lead to incredible ingenuity, but without prayerful obedience, it will not lead to wisdom. And instead of being a blessing, we may very well become a curse to those around us. Now, if this were a simple morality tale, or if this were one of Aesop's fables, then this would probably be the end of Abraham's story. He would disappear into oblivion, having squandered God's blessing after succumbing to fear. But it's not a fable, and the Bible is not a morality tale. 
So at the beginning of chapter 13, we read the following. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Apparently, the only consequence of this season of dishonesty and disobedience is that Abraham got rich, and then he came home and picked up where he had left off with God. It's not the moral reflection we expect. Maybe the ends do justify the means. Not so fast. The text intends to teach us something quite different. And what it intends to teach us is this, not even our disobedience can destroy the promises of God. Having been told that God's blessing to the entire world would flow through Sarah, Abraham brazenly put her at risk. That's what we do. That's what humans do. We receive God's blessing and we walk away from it when trouble arises. But God is unwilling to let our sin undermine his promises. He will not allow our rebellion to destroy his grace. Instead of allowing Abraham's foolishness and selfishness to upend his promises, God chooses to rescue and to redeem. He brings Abraham back to the promised land and he brings him back with the riches of Egypt on his back. That's the way that grace works. God welcomes us home and he blesses us richly even when we don't deserve it. I hope this gives you hope. God is not out there waiting for you to screw things up so he can take your blessings away. His grace is always greater than our sin. His promises will always outlast our disobedience. If you've wallowed in sin for a season, if you have succumbed to sin, succumbed to fear, and made a sequence of poor decisions and you feel stuck, know this from the story of Abraham that you can turn back to God. Abraham basically threw everything away. But God rescued him, and he welcomed him back. And Abraham learned his lesson. There in verse 4 of chapter 13, after all was said and done and the family had returned to Egypt, he worshiped God once again at the altar he built when he first came into the land. Ultimately, through this experience, he learned to rest on grace rather than to rely on his wits. Now, sin has consequences. Sin has consequences, and we will see those consequences in Abraham's life in the, in the chapters ahead. But God is greater than our sin. His promises cannot be thwarted. And at the end of the day, we rest on his grace. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this story, for this season in the life of Abraham and Sarah when fear drove them into rebellion, when they stopped praying and started planning, when they relied on their wits instead of your grace. 
We thank you for this season where we see the consequences of sin, but we also see the power of your promises. And we learn that nothing, nothing can undo the promise that you make to us. We thank you for your grace poured out on us in Jesus Christ. Through him our sins are forgiven and by whom we are redeemed. May we rest on the grace we receive in him and honor you in our lives, we pray. Amen.